Please go with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29. And we'll be looking today at chapter 29, verses 31, verse 31 to chapter 30, verse 24. Chapter 29. We, if you're visiting with us for the first time today, we're going, uh, we're on, in a series going through the book of Genesis. That's what we do here as a church. We preach expositionally through books of the Bible and sometimes key passages within books. And so, for example, prior to going through Genesis, we were going through the Sermon on the Mount. So we took that distinct passage out of the Gospel of Matthew and treated that within the context of Matthew's Gospel, but trying to look at that very famous passage of Scripture. So we're now going through Genesis, and we have for some time now. And one of the things that I have regularly said is that if we wanted to give a subtitle to Genesis, if we wanted to to title it, I think we could call it the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is what we are looking at. That is what we are watching unfold in the book of Genesis is God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Genesis, particularly after chapter 11, we are seeing the origins of God's covenant people. We're seeing God's choosing, his imparting, his promising, his fulfilling. We're getting a sense for what it means to, what it looks like to be the covenant people of God. God comes to people, he comes to Abraham, and he makes a very specific covenant, a very particular covenant with this man Abraham. And he says, through you, I'm going to build my people on the earth, and through you, I'm going to send my son. And we'll see that later. That becomes clearer and clearer as we go through the Bible, as we progress through redemptive history. But we have in these men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, the fathers, we have the beginnings of God's covenant people. We have seen this choosing, imparting, promising, and fulfilling. We've seen that in the life of Abraham. We've seen it now in the life of Isaac. But now we are watching it unfold in the life of Jacob. That's where we find ourselves now in this larger story. And although we know that God was active in Jacob's life even before he was born. And in fact, you know, we, we know from, from Romans 9 that God chose Jacob before the foundation of the earth, that God's electing purposes precede creation before the world began. But we know that, that God was working in Jacob's life while he was in the womb, really. But God does not make himself personally known to Jacob until we get to chapter 28. And in chapter 28 of Genesis, Jacob is running from his hostile brother. His brother Esau wants to kill him because Jacob has disguised himself and gone to his father and pretended to be Esau, received the blessing in place of Esau. Esau finds out and Esau's so angry with his brother Jacob that he determines in his heart he's going to kill him. So Jacob is there running for his life. And he is also seeking a wife. His father has sent him back to the extended family of Abraham to find a wife so that he would not get a wife from the Canaanite people, a people destined for destruction, a people filled with all kinds of wicked practices. And as I said last week, if you want to understand uh, what the Canaanites were doing or what the Canaanites were like as a wicked people, go and read Leviticus 18. And you'll see there a list of the kinds of things that... They are doing things that I won't even 
say explicitly, especially on the fifth week uh, when we have our children here with us. But Jacob is running for his life and he is seeking a wife. He's alone and he has nothing. All alone in the middle of nowhere with nothing. And it's in this context that God comes to Jacob and assures him that he is watching over him. And God does this, interestingly, he does this through a visual and a message. God does not just come to Jacob and speak to him, although he does do that. But God comes to Jacob in a dream and gives him a visual of a ladder that is connecting heaven and earth, communicating to Jacob that that God is present with him. God who is in heaven is present with him on earth. And going up and down the ladder or the stairway are angels. They are ascending and descending. And that is communicating to Jacob that God is sending his angels to watch over Jacob while he's on this journey. All alone, with nothing, fleeing his brother's murderous intentions. So Jacob sees these things, but he also hears. He hears these words from the Lord. Let me read chapter 28, verses 13 to 15. Just to set up what we're doing today, this is what God says to, by way of promise, this is what God says to Jacob. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then here's those lovely words. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So God comes to Jacob just as he came to Abraham, just as he came to Isaac. He comes to Jacob and he promises that he's going to watch over him. So last week we saw what we could consider phase one. After chapter 28, after those words of promise, last week we saw phase one of God's watchful care. And phase one involved Jacob's wives. Yes, plural. Jacob's wives. God providentially directs Jacob to his extended family and future wife. God settles him in the house of his uncle Laban. But God also disciplines Jacob. The deceiver is deceived. The opportunist is, taking, is taken advantage of. God is holding Jacob accountable for his deception of his father. So we know that Jacob deceives his father in order to get the blessing. And so what happens? He goes into this land. He goes to his uncle's house. He's going to marry Rachel. He works for Rachel for seven years. And then... In the middle of the night or at the end of the day, God swi- uh, Laban switches Leah, the older sister for Rachel. Jacob wakes up in the morning and realizes that he has consummated a marriage with the wrong sister. It's Leah, not Rachel. And so there he is married to Leah, not the one he worked for for seven years. God is fatherly caring for Jacob. He is disciplining him. Jacob the deceiver is now being 
deceived. God is shaping his, his faith. He's shaping his character. He's holding him accountable for his sins. We talked about last week how you reap what you sow. It's a biblical idea, not karma, because karma has a, is an impersonal system. But reaping what you sow is life in a world governed by a personal, absolute being, God. And so it matters what we do in this life. And we see Jacob being disciplined. And let me just make a quick comment about discipline. God fatherly cares for Jacob just like God fatherly cares for us. Oftentimes, we want God to direct us and show us his will, but we don't like it when God disciplines us. But we read in Hebrews 12 that God disciplines us because he loves us. And so we find in the discipline of God, we find a model for us as parents that we ought to discipline our children. You know what this also tells us? It should be no surprise to us that the world's literature, the world's scholarly and psychological literature is is contrary to God's means and method of discipline in the Bible. Why should that be? No surprise to us. Because the world knows nothing of God's fatherly care. It's only the believer who understands the nature of discipline and that it is good and right and healthy because we ourselves are disciplined by our Father. Those who are on the outside, who are not sons of God, are not disciplined by God. And so it should be no surprise to us that they battle against the very notion of God's way of discipline. This is one area in which the world's view is very different from God's view. And if you want to understand a healthy, God-honoring, child-loving way of disciplining your children, there's a book called Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. It's probably one of the best things that you can read as a parent. As you're wrestling with this, you probably have relatives. You probably have uh, maybe even some Christian relatives, but certainly non-Christian relatives who may think that the way you're disciplining your children is, is, is not right or unjust. And this is a book that will cement you in a godly way of disciplining your children so that we can be fathers and mothers to our children as God is a father to us. So all of that, going back to last week, we were looking at God's discipline of Jacob. And at the end of last week, we were left with a troubled home. We've got two wives who are sisters. Jacob has two wives. He has Leah, the one who was thrust upon him. And then he has Rachel, whom he worked for for another seven years. He's he's worked for all of these years to get Rachel, but he also has Leah. Two wives, one loved and the other unloved. One eagerly pursued, one thrown upon him. Two wives through Laban's deception and Jacob's lust, his desire. We have to remember that once the deception had taken place and he had consummated his marriage with Leah, Jacob could have said, the Lord has brought upon me my own deeds. Leah's my wife. And he could have moved on. But he doesn't do that. He also marries Rachel. And thereby becomes a polygamist. And so we have Laban's deception. We have Jacob's lust coming together to create this very, very troubled home. All of it, of course, under the banner and umbrella of God's discipline of this man for his deception. 
And naturally, all of this sets us up for today's topic. So that's just introduction. Hopefully it achieved that goal. But naturally, this sets us up for what we're going to look at today. This is phase two. So last week, phase one, we're seeing God faithfully direct and discipline Jacob and bring him to the home of his future wife, wives. But today we see phase two of God's watchful care. And the title for the sermon is Jacob's Offspring. Jacob's Offspring. Go ahead and, uh, if you would, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to read Genesis 29, verse 31 to 30, 24. Jacob's Offspring. Remember, before I read, that God had promised Jacob... In verse 14 of 28, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. In you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And that's what we are seeing unfold today. So Genesis 29, verse 31. This is the word of the Lord. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And you can see here, there should be a note in your Bible telling you what these names mean, or at least the the word play behind these names, but it's explained in each case in the scripture. Verse 34 Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. You see the desperation here. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Well, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. This is a mess. That's not there in the Bible. I just threw that in there. Verse 10. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. 
When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his help, which we need every time we come to the Bible, which we especially need in a passage like this. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord God, we bow before you this day. You are the maker of heaven and earth. Nothing that exists, visible or invisible, exists apart from your creation. You are the creator. All creation is distinct from you, the infinite, eternal God. Lord, we give you praise this morning that by your providence you have brought us to this place to hear your words sung and prayed and preached Father, we are undeserving of your favor. Father, we recognize that our hearts are corrupt, that we do not love you or neighbor as we ought to, Father, and that we are born in sin, that as we grow up, we see this in children. As we grow up, we are inclined to self. We are inclined to pride. We are inclined against our neighbor's good. And Father, we recognize that for these things, the wrath of God abides on the world. Your judgment, your just condemnation of men's wicked deeds will take place once and for all on the final day. But you have sent Christ. And Father, we Christians this morning gather to celebrate the gospel of Christ. We gather to celebrate this morning that you have entered into our world of sinfulness, of darkness, of weakness in the person of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless one, the God made man, fully human and fully divine. And he, for our salvation, took upon himself the penalty for our sins, that through trusting In his death and resurrection, our sins can be forgiven, washed away, and we have, through him and only through him, eternal life. Father, we praise you for this glorious gospel of free grace. And Lord, this morning we pray that this gospel would arise out of this text, that we would see it even here, God. And we pray that you would help us as we go through this text. It's a hard passage And I pray, Father, that you would give me wisdom as I preach it. You would give us all clear understanding of what's here, Father. Guide us by your Spirit, for apart from him, we can understand nothing. We can respond to nothing 
And so, Lord, we ask your grace through the Holy Spirit this morning upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are three major considerations, or probably the way I would say it, is there are three major dynamics that are tied together in this passage. I'm going to come at this passage thematically because I think we need to see each of these dynamics. The way the passage is, is grouped together in terms of the verses, the way it's structured is it deals with each of these wives and each of these maidservants. And it goes through and sort of adds up all of the children until you get to the end, of course, with Rachel bearing Joseph. But what I want to do is take the story as a whole and come at the whole story from three angles to see these three dynamics tied together. So here they are. They're listed in your bulletin. You can go there and see them. Number one, the competition of the sisters. Number two, the faith of the family. And number three, the grace of the Lord. So let's look at each of these. First, the the competition of the sisters. I think we would all admit that this is one of the strangest passages in the Bible. It's definitely one of the strangest. Now, we've seen some pretty strange passages already. So I say one of, one of. The strangest passages in Genesis, the Old Testament, and for that matter, in all of Scripture. This is family drama, family craziness at its height. I mean, we, some of you may think you have a crazy family on one or the other side. Of, you know, we all, we all tend to think the other side's a little crazier. But some of you may think that you have a crazy family, but none of them, we need to be assured, is as crazy as what we're reading here in this passage. In terms of circumstances, we have a toxic blend of polygamy and favoritism among sisters, not just polygamy and favoritism among just two. Women, but we have these things among sisters. This is, this is not going to go well. In terms of human emotions, we have longing, envy, and anger all swirled together. And it's a nice little blend of narrative here. But one thing I think we can conclude in light of that is that there is a purpose here that would have been very relevant to the Israelites. Now remember, Moses, is, who wrote this book, Moses' first audience would have been Israel encamped in the wilderness. And one of the things that I think Moses is communicating by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who inspired Scripture, one of the things that Moses is communicating is that the Israelites had this kind of origin. right? What does that create when you go back and you show someone that these are your roots? This is where it all began. There's just one word. There's one word response for that. Humility. When this is the origin of your family, you really can't help but to simply be humble. By the way, I'll say this, that when we come to the Bible, one of the things that shows, uh, that authenticates the scriptures, the scriptures are self-authenticating. We don't go to archaeology and, and history and our own reason our own scientific discoveries to try to authenticate Scripture. Scripture authenticates itself. It shows forth its own glory. And if you're, you want to read more about that, read John Piper's A Peculiar Glory, which talks about 
this very thing. But one of the things that authenticates the scriptures from within the scriptures is this criterion of embarrassment. The fact that there are all of these little embarrassing things in scripture that no one who is wanting to tell a false tale or make up something is going to tell you about their family. You know, a good parallel to this is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is raised. And who is the first witness of the resurrection? It's a woman. Now, in that time, today, that just, you know, that doesn't mean anything. But back then, that would have been seriously discrediting. But that's the first witness in the Gospels. Peter's, all of his bald, foolish statements are just presented. He's the leading apostle in the early church. He's just presented out there in his rawness. So we see here from this... uh, an account, really, of how the scriptures are self-authenticating. No one does this to try to elevate their family history. You talk about all the great deeds and all the wonderful things and character traits about your ancestors. Not this. No, not this. But this is what we have because this is what happened. This is how it happened. Now, we'll say this, too. This is much like our stories, right? As God... As we consider what God has brought us from and through, we consider our own humility. As we consider where we started, the Israelites need to consider the God who's come out and brought them out of slavery through these plagues, who's parted the sea and he's bringing them into the land. They need to be reminded of who they are and that all that they have is from God's grace. And the same is true of us. We need to be reminded of where we come from, of what God saved us from. It's amazing. I read membership applications uh, from many different people. And you don't always hear the membership application that says, before I got saved, before I came to Christ, before God changed my heart, I was, you know, fill in the blank. All these crazy sort of sins that you imagine that are out there, you know, obviously that we associate with sin. No, oftentimes what I read is I was, I was just so selfish. I was focused on pleasing other people. I was all about the praise of men. These two are inherently wicked, no less wicked. And so we need to remember, what did God pull us out of? What has God saved us from? The Israelites needed to see what God had brought them from and what God had brought them through. And as we read this story, the most obvious feature is the competition between sisters, between Rachel and Leah. And there's two things I want you to see here under this point. So the competition of the sisters, and there's two things that I want you to see under this heading. First, their motives. Well, let me go ahead and give them both to you. So their motives and their means. And first, I want to look at their motives. This competition is fueled by powerful motives. In Leah's case, what's the motive? It is to be loved and accepted by her husband. That's what's driving Leah. She is the unwanted, unloved wife, and she sees in childbearing a way of winning her husband's love. This is her ticket. If she could just pile up sons, woo, just pile up sons for my husband, then he will love me, he will embrace me, he will honor me, he'll see my value and my worth. That's what drives this woman. This is most evident in what she says after the birth of her first, third, and sixth sons. After Reuben, I'll go through these quickly. After Reuben, verse 32, for now my husband will love me. It's her first son. Now, now, 
He'll love me. He didn't love me before, but now he's going to love me. After Levi, verse 34, now this time, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. You see the desperation? It's actually quite sad. She's having children with the hope. She, it's like you, you, you picture her bringing every one of these babies to her husband, Jacob, and, and he grabs the baby and, and just hugs it and walks away. The sense is that there's no attachment, there's no love, there's no honor here from Jacob to Leah. She is the despised, unloved wife. And then we have, after Zebulun, verse 20, now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. Six sons. And she's still saying that. After the first, after the second, after six sons left. So last one. And she's still saying, maybe now he'll love me. Maybe now he'll value me. What about Rachel's motives? What about her? Well, she is the infertile barren wife. And she is driven by envy of her sister's fertility. Verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Verse 8, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So Leah is looking at Jacob and Rachel is looking at Leah. And so the race to have children is on. So we see their first, their motives. Now we come to their means. The competition of the sisters, their motives, and now we come to their means. What means will they use to serve their motives? Well, beginning with Rachel, they use, literally use, their maidservants to produce children. So when each of these ladies is married to Jacob, they get a maidservant to help them as they are going through life as a wife. And what happens is these women just sort of give their maidservant over to Jacob to have children with the maidservant on their behalf. Yes, this sounds very strange to us because it is strange. Rachel has Dan and Naphtali through Bilhah, Leah, who already has four of her own children. That's what's incredible. She already has four children. She has Gad and Asher through Zilpah. So both of them do this. Rachel does it first with Bilhah, and then we see Leah doing it with her maidservant as well. But this is not new to us. Those of us who've been going through Genesis, this is not the first time we've encountered this, right? This is exactly what we saw with Sarah, Abraham's wife, and Hagar. Sarah did the very same thing with Hagar. Now, to those, to those of us living today, this sounds utterly foreign, utterly strange. But to those living at this time, this was actually a custom. This was actually quite customary in Mesopotamia, in Egypt, in this area of Canaan. Well, in the other area of Canaan, it's, it's customary throughout this time to give your maidservant to your husband, if you're barren, so that she can have, as a surrogate, she can have children for you on your behalf. It's customary, but it is at the core untrusting, fails to trust God, fails to depend on God. It is unloving. These women are treated like tools. Zilpah and Bilhah treated like tools for children. You imagine uh, Bilhah, she carries this baby for nine months. She has the baby and then Rachel just pushes her to the side, right? She's just a servant. 
pushes her to the side, grabs her baby, and it's her baby, not Bilhah's baby. It's Leah's baby, not Zilpah's baby. So this is incredibly unloving, unjust. It's wicked, but it is a custom of sinful, fallen human beings at this time. And contrary to God's design for marriage, we know that marriage is between one man and one woman. This is God's design for marriage from the beginning. And here we have something that is utterly contrary to it. So it's worldly in every way. And in addition to this sinful practice, this sinful means, they also turn to superstition and bartering over their husband. This is the crazy bit about the mandrakes. Now, mandrakes are uh, this, this fruit that would have been understood at that time to be an aphrodisiac, but also something that would help women to conceive. So it's really just a superstition. This fruit will help a woman to conceive. I just think how many of those things we have in our day, even today. But anyway, we'll go down that road. So we have here this, uh, this superstition. Look at verses 14 to 16. In the days of weed harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. This is crazy stuff. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. These are the means. Do we see that? These are the means that serve the motives of these two women. So what do we do with all this? Well, I think there are several implications for us. One of them is this. This competitive strife between sisters shows us what life looks like. Get this. What life looks like when we find our value in anything other than God. That's at the heart of this entire competition. This entire story of strife are two individuals who are finding their value in something other than the Lord. For Leah, it is the love of her spouse. That is what gives her value. That is what makes her life worth living. That is what gives her meaning. In other words, that is her huge idol. I've often mentioned uh, Timothy Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. It's a great book. I read it years ago. And it reminds us that anything that we cannot live without is an idol in our lives. Anything without which we cannot be happy is an idol in our lives. We don't build statues, at least in this society, in this day, But we build many of them in our hearts. And for Leah, there was a big statue in her heart of Jacob, and she bowed down to it every day. The same is true of Rachel. She bowed down to this statue of the status of not being the barren woman, of being able to have children and to outdo her sister. When we find value in anything other than God, this is what life looks like. And here, I just want to give you a few things that we see. And we'll see in our lives too. If we begin to find our value in anything other than God, this is what we're going to see beginning to to rise up 
grow up in our lives. The first is the consuming of our hearts. These women are driven. You see that. It's from beginning to end. They can't let it go. They're driven. They're literally, it's like a train pushing them forward. They're consumed. And that's what we find. Our idols consume us. They take up all of our heart. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition. Selfish ambitions, the idols of self, drive us, consume us. So we see that. We see the destruction of our relationships. This is one long story of destroyed relationships. Look at the relationship between Leah and Rachel. Of course, that's obviously destructive in nature. Look at the relationship between Jacob and Rachel and the interaction that they are having. We also see here the relationship between Jacob and Leah, the way that he has pushed her to the side. Everything in this story is destroyed relationships. We see the desperation of our actions, the length that we will go to serve our idols. We see that in our own sins. By the way, your patterns of sin will help you to understand your idols because we will go to great lengths to serve our idols. And that's what we see here. The means show the idols behind the motives to great lengths. And then finally, the discontent of our lives. Notice this. Neither one of them is satisfiable. Neither one of them is. Leah has six children and she's sons and she's still saying, now, 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 he'll love me. What about Rachel? Finally, the Lord gives her a son. And what does she say? May God add to me another. I I want another one. No satisfaction here. And that's because idols don't satisfy. They keep you groping. They keep you reaching. They never fill your hand. They never fill your heart. There's only one God who can do that. And that's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He alone can satisfy all the longings of your discontent life. All the longings of your discontent heart this very morning are the result of idolatry. Turn to God and find contentment in Him alone as your God. So that, we see, is the competition of the sisters. Now we come to the second point, which is the faith of the family. As we've just discussed throughout this narrative, we see much sin. That's obvious. We see much sin, much foolishness, much independence from God. The sinful motives and means of the sisters and the passivity and insensitivity of Jacob. That's something we haven't really talked about, but Jacob's just, he's not really the key figure here as we go through. He's just a pawn. I mean, he's, he's hired uh, by, he's hired by one wife from the other with some fruit so that she can produce children through him. He's, he's like a tool or a pawn. He's just moved around throughout the story. But what we do get a hint at with Jacob is his passivity and his insensitivity towards these two wives, towards taking two to begin with. His insensitivity to Rachel and his passivity to try to bring some kind of peace He's just totally disconnected. So we see all this sin. We see all of this folly in this story. It's not hard. You don't have to look very hard to find sin in this story. It's all the way through. And yet, 
yet. It is clear from this passage that this is a family of faith. What? Yes, this is a family of faith, a family that has been graced by God, that trusts in the God of Abraham. And we see this in several ways. And so what I want to do is I want to show you in this text where we see this faith rising up. So first, we see it in the praise of Leah and Rachel. I'll go through Leah first. Verse 32, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. Verse 33, because the Lord has heard that I am hated. Verse 35, with the birth of Judah, she says, this time I will praise the Lord. Verse 20, God has endowed me with a good endowment. You see all that praise coming from Leah? Now listen to the praise coming from Rachel. Verse 23, finally, with the birth of Joseph, God has taken away my reproach. Verse 24, may the Lord add to me another son. It is the Lord who has done this. And these women are praising the Lord. So we see faith. Second, we see their faith in the prayers of Leah and Rachel. Verse 17, and God listened to Leah. Verse 22, God remembered Rachel and God listened to her. We don't get a lot of prayers explicit in this passage. But when God shows up and does something specific, it tells us that he heard a prayer. He heard prayers, he listened to them, and he responded to their prayers. That implies faith. They are praying to the Lord, not just to gods in general, not just to a God. They are praying to the God of Abraham, the the God whom Abraham called upon, the God whom Sarah prayed to, the God whom Rebecca prayed to. That's who they're praying to. And third, we see it in the recognition of Jacob. Verses one to two, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children. She envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Jacob trusts God for in in, in the midst of all his folly and his sinfulness, Jacob knows that God is behind all of this. The same Jacob who, who got the birthright and who got the blessing The same Jacob who was brought there to the well and Rachel happened to come up at that time. The same Jacob who's been taken into the house of Laban in safety, though deceived, knows. He knows that God is in control of such things. These are words of faith. So we see the faith of this family. So what are the implications for us as we consider this faith? Well, let me just put it simply. I think it encourages us very much. It encourages us. When we read the Bible, we are not reading about perfect people. We are not. We saw that even with Noah. Surely Noah's got to be perfect, right? I mean, we get the story. He's going to build the ark and he obeys. He does all these things. He's the only guy. Every other human being besides Noah and by extension, his family. Destroyed by the Lord because of wickedness. Depraved. God spares Noah. Certainly Noah is a great man. Well, he was a great man of faith. But he was imperfect and he was sinful. Like every other human being. And so we see the same with these patriarchs. We saw that time and time again with Abraham. We saw it with Isaac. We see it now with 
Jacob. The Holy Spirit wants to remind us that these men were not perfect. We are seeing broken people who grow over time, who grow over time. And we are seeing those who are the recipients of God's free grace. So when we read about these broken people's lives, we should be encouraged to know that God's grace is with us, those of us in Christ, that that it is by grace that we are saved. It is by grace that we grow. It is by grace that we work. Ephesians 2, verse 10. It is by grace that we will stand before God one day, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and even having rewards in heaven, all that of grace. And so we read this, we're reminded of that wonderful fact. But now we come to it explicitly in the sermon. And so we see our third point for this morning, and that is the grace of the Lord. We've seen the competition of the sisters, the faith of the family, and now we come to consider, finally, the grace of the Lord. Although the narrative begins with God and his grace, I have waited until the end to make this point. Why? Well, because I want this to be our primary takeaway this morning. I want to end on this note. This is climactic note. I want to end here on this note. And let me say this, by treating it at the end, it also has the effect of showing that God's grace overshadows sin. God's grace consumes sin. God's grace abounds over sin. And we get that effect as we come through this story and we're just like, these people are crazy. This is ridiculous. This is wicked. This is all the, we fill in the blank. There are many adjectives you could use for the people in this story. But now we come to see the power of God's grace. And I think we see God's grace in this passage in three major ways. As we finish up this morning, three major ways. First, his pity. Second, his patience. And third, his plan. So first, his pity. Let's look at that first. We see God's grace in his pity. God meets them in their misery and affliction. He meets Leah and Rachel in the midst of their misery and affliction. He comes to them with compassion and mercy. And it's interesting. This is where the narrative both begins and ends. 29 verse 31, the very first verse. What do we read? What what kicks off this story? When the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Those are the first words of this story, this crazy story of human silliness, foolishness, sinfulness. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And then we ask, how, well, let me get to another, let me give you another quote in the middle Verse 17, or another uh, verse in the middle, chapter 30, verse 17, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And then where does the narrative leave us? The narrative begins with the Lord seeing misery and affliction and acting in pity, in mercy. That's where the narrative begins. And then the narrative ends in verse 22 of chapter 30. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. So we have a God who looks to the heart of sinful Leah with pity at the beginning and throughout. 
And then at the end, the note is that we have a God who looks to the heart of sinful, weak Rachel with pity. And I want to say this. The God of the Bible, the God of the Bible hears and sees and remembers. As we get here in this text, those words, he hears, he sees, and he remembers. The God of the Bible is attentive to human suffering. You know, philosophers talk about the problem of evil. The question of how can a good God, an all-powerful God, a good God, with that existing, how can there be evil in the world? I've recently been reading a, a bit of a book on this, on this question. And it's interesting that the, the Bible really, at the end of the day, doesn't give us a clear answer to this question. There's much mystery involved in the problem of evil. We get uh, an understanding of it in part in Job. And we get little bits throughout the New Testament and other parts throughout the Scriptures. But what we know is this, that this God who reigns mysteriously in this respect over his world is a God who sees suffering. He's a God who sees suffering and cares for suffering, so much so that James can say in his epistle that pure religion, real religion, real Christianity is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to remain unstained from the world. In other words, God uses his people to do this very thing, to pity and show mercy on the afflicted. This is a God. If you do not know him, know this. He is a God who cares about the suffering of the world, of human suffering. And he cares for you. And he's brought you here today by his providence. You're here. If you don't know this God, turn to Christ in faith, trusting that God sent Christ here to save us by by dying on the cross for our sins, that we deserve death because of our sins. And if you're honest with yourself, you have murdered, you have lied, you have committed adultery because Jesus says, if you've lusted with someone in your heart, you've committed adultery. If you've hated your brother in your heart, you've murdered. Every person in this world at the very base puts things in place of God, dishonors his infinite glory and deserves eternal punishment. But God sent Christ to take punishment on himself that we could be forgiven. And live with him forever. That's the good news of Christianity. And you're here this morning to hear that. I pray that you will respond to that. So we see God's pity. This also reminds us that children are a gift from the Lord. To abort them, to murder them in the womb is to destroy a gift from God himself. Right? You can't read this passage without seeing that fact that, that children come from the Lord. It is God who closes the womb according to his own purposes. And it is God who opens the womb according to his own purposes. And so to take and, and snatch an unborn baby out of the womb and end its life is to spit in the face of God and destroy his good gift. Psalm 127.3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. In this culture of death, the world knows nothing of this theology of children. Knows nothing of this theology of children. A culture that will abort them but not spank them is a foolish culture. It is a godless, wicked culture. Not in accord with the revelation of God in nature and in Scripture. But this is the world 
in which we live. And this is the world in which, in which we must be light, be Christians. So we see first his pity, but secondly, we see his patience. So we're looking at the grace of the Lord. We see his pity. Secondly, we see his patience. God not only meets them in their affliction, but he also meets them in their folly. God works in their lives despite their sins. He meets them where they are in their weakness, much like we do with our children. You know, we think about our children and we say, okay, we, we must discipline them, but we must also be patient with them. So there's a way to discipline them that is impatient. There's a way to be patient with them that is actually permissive. And so we want to be both firm and gentle. We want to be both patient and we want to discipline them. Psalm 103, 11 to 14 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children. Do you see that? So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I can remember when I, when we first had our son, he was really little, two or three. My mom would say to me, of course, she said this to me a lot. You know how grandparents are. But she would say to me, uh, Lonnie, he's just two. Lonnie, he's just two. You know, you constantly hear that. Uh, and that's, that is good in one sense. Of course, sometimes it was, it was a little indulgent. But, but sometimes, you know, as grandparents do, but sometimes it was very appropriate because I needed to hear that he's just two or she's just two, right? Remember their frame. Remember their frame. Be patient with them in their weakness because that is how God is with us. And that is what we see. All throughout this passage, God is entering into this mess and showing grace, showing kindness, showing patience. This is the God of the Bible. This is his love. This is his character. So God does not get rid of his people. He grows them. He doesn't throw them out the window. He doesn't, he's not watching you, waiting on you to mess up so that he can toss you out the window. If that's the way you relate to God, you probably don't know God. Because to know the Lord is to have the Lord within you, the Holy Spirit. And he, uh, he tells us within our own spirits that we are children of God. And the God who we call Father doesn't just toss his people out the window when they mess up. When they sin. I don't want to use the word mess up. No, when we sin, he doesn't just toss us out the window. He comes to us with patience and grace. And he grows us. But lest we be comfortable in our sin... Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, God comes to you in patience. He comes to you in your weakness. He comes to you with mercy and grace. But he does not come to you in that way that you might stay that way. He comes to you in that way that you might grow out of that. And to stay that way is to presume on his grace. It is to do exactly what Paul is addressing in Romans 2. To be self-deceived into thinking because God is bearing with you in your sin that God's okay with your sin and you can just keep on doing it. No, his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, to holiness, to Christ-likeness. As we finish up this morning, this really is my favorite, favorite part of the sermon 
we see God's grace in his plan. I've said before that my favorite part of preaching through Genesis is I have come to see the glory of God's plan in Christ so much more than I did before. And it's amazing to see this plan unfolding. So we see the grace of the Lord in his pity, in his patience, and finally now in his plan. I want to point you back to the title of today's sermon. I entitled it, Jacob's Offspring. I did not entitle it, Crazy Family. You could, in one sense, entitle it, Crazy Family. The Crazy Family. But that's not what this text is about. It is about Jacob's offspring. Ultimately, this sermon is not about family dynamics. So don't let that be your takeaway. Family dynamics. No. Rather, this passage is about the faithfulness of God in providing offspring for Jacob. That is the end result of this passage. A large family. Remember, we have to take this little wild, weird story and put it under the heading of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all that we've been seeing in these covenant promises. God has promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he will make them into a great nation and that he will bless all the world through their offspring. So what is our passage for today really about? I think it's about two things. At the end of the day, it's two things. One, God is building a nation. And two, God is preserving the line. That's what's happening. That's, that's God's intention for this passage as it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. By the way, that's one of the reasons why topical preaching is so damaging. Is because if you just parachute into this text and take out some nuggets and some practical applications, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss the whole thing. You're going to take it right out of the context of all these promises and all these fulfillments. It's just going to pass you by. The intention of the Lord is just going to pass you by as a Bible reader. And you're going to go home with a few prac apps that you've written down on a sticky. And you're going to forget those just like you do every other New Year's resolution. But this is the story of God in Christ. This is what will change our lives. This is what will stay with us in good times, bad times, and in the hour of death. This is the meaning of Scripture. Scripture is about God and his purposes in Christ, not about your best life. So... That's what we find here. God is building a nation and he is preserving the line. In his sovereignty and providence, the Lord is building a nation in record time. Think about that. I mean, we've, this thing is fueled by competition and a plurality of wives. We've got four women pumping out babies and, and they're, they're all competing with each other. Right? I mean, this is fueling this family. So we see the sovereignty of God even over human sin. Now think about that. You may say, well, hold on a second. Does that mean that God willed for him to have all of these these wives? Well, that's the mystery, right? Think about it. Did God will for Jacob's brothers to sell him into slavery? Are they off the hook because that was part of God's plan? No. What you meant for evil, Joseph says to his brothers, God meant for good. That's a mystery. If you can mind the depths of that, well, you can't. And no one can, no matter how many degrees they have or how many books they've written. We see here that God is ultimately behind all of this and how that works together with human responsibility and divine sovereignty, we do not know. But we must note this, that this is all fueled by these things. But even more importantly, God is preserving the line of the coming deliverer. 
And he does this through Leah. This is the grace of God. Just as he did this through Jacob, the younger son, he does this through Leah, the unloved wife. From Leah comes Judah. And through the line of Judah will come the Christ. It is through this unloved wife. Here she is. She's trying so hard to get her husband's affection. And all the while, God is going to bring the Christ through her. The redeemer of the universe through her. That's amazing. She didn't even know it. She didn't even know that God was doing all of this. But in glory, she will. And even now, in her soul, before the Lord, she knows all that God was doing in her misery and her affliction. But I want to show you one last thing that's interesting before we close. We also see this with Levi. Not just Judah. You see, Christ will come from the line of Judah. That's why he's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But we also see this anticipated with Levi. Levi anticipates the sacrificial system, which itself anticipates the Christ, the Lamb of God. You cannot think of the sacrificial system, all those sacrifices to appease God's wrath. You cannot think about the sacrificial system without thinking about the Levites. Because the Levites were the ones who oversaw the sacrificial system. And the high priest was a Levite. Aaron, Moses' brother. Moses and Aaron were Levites. So what are we to make of that? Well, here, even here, in this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible, we find arrows pointing us forward to the glorious event at the end of the Bible. I want to read Revelation 5, 5 to 6 for you as we close. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals, and between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing As though it had been slain. Here's my point. That with the mention of Levi and Judah. Our minds as Christians who read all of scripture. As God's word. The Old and New Testaments. Our minds cannot cannot help but to go to Christ. His person and his work. His person as the descendant of Judah. As the king and his work. As the redeemer who takes away the sins of the world. Through sacrificing himself. On the cross. So here we have these glorious pointers to a glorious Savior in the midst of a crazy story. Let's pray. Father, we exalt your name. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And we pray, Father, that our hearts would cling to Christ, that we would not grow weary in following Christ in serving Christ, in loving and treasuring Christ. He is our only hope in life and death. There will be one word when we die and stand before you that will be sufficient. Christ, no other word, Father. And I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who thinks that if they die today and they stand before a holy God, that they could say anything other than Christ, I pray, God, that you would show them the glory of your gospel, that they would put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and that they would follow you in repentance of life, faith towards God. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would lock it into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.